Well, please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James 4, the guys have some Bibles, so we want everybody to be able to look at the passage we'll be considering. So get a Bible from them. Just get their attention as they make their way down. They'll get one to you. You can keep that as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of the Word of God. And we continue our series through the book of James. It only has five chapters. We are in chapter 4, so we're getting there. And we will, over the next several weeks, then conclude our study. But the title of it is on the screen behind me, Real Faith, because James offers tests of genuine, authentic faith. And we have seen throughout this series that the word faith in the New Testament is the same word for belief. So whether or not what we claim to believe is genuine will be manifest by how we make out on these tests, these evidences that James gives us. I've had the privilege over the years of marrying many couples, including a number in this very room. And always before I officiate at the wedding of any couple, I require that they go through premarital counseling. And in that premarital counseling, we go through a published curriculum together. One of the homework assignments requires the couple to think about their plans for the future. And the reason that that assignment's included is to ensure that both of them are aware of the other's expectations, but also to identify any areas in which there is a major divergence of opinion so that it can be resolved now rather than creating problems later. The exercise that they do results in the couple laying out their expectations for a number of things, for children and how many they plan, hope to have. And their expectations for finances and what standard of living they expect to obtain and maintain. And it asks about vacations and what expectations each brings into the marriage in the area of vacation based on their upbringing and experiences. And we go over several other areas to explore their plans together for the coming years. And whenever I do that with a couple, usually a young couple, but not always, I remind them that none of these plans are guaranteed. I explain to them some of the things that could go wrong and that could impede their plans. And I do that so that they can plan for the change of plans that will inevitably come. And I do it by pointing out several areas in which they are obviously not in control of the outcome. So things like health. I may be counseling in front of me a young, vibrant, active couple, but I tell them of people I've known personally who experience some kind of health problem even shortly after the wedding. It's not completely uncommon for one of the spouses to develop a physical problem early on, but if not soon, the odds are that one will do do so and the odds increase as the years go on. I tell them that their standard of living is not entirely in their control either. If they work for someone else, then their stability may be tied to the whim and or the ability of the person or persons by whom they're employed. They could get fired or laid off or their company could go out of business. And if they go into business for themselves, they're insulated from abrupt dismissal 
that is getting fired. But the success of the business may well be influenced by economic factors and trends largely outside of their control. And if they save and invest, the value of their portfolio can be affected by matters taking place an ocean away and obviously outside of their control. And by the time I'm done, it's a wonder the couple still wants to get married at all. But thankfully, love is not only blind, but it's deaf, and they don't listen to anything I say anyway. Now, there are, of course, responses to all of these contingencies. We can, perhaps, avoid premature health issues by diet and exercise. We can insulate ourselves somewhat from the ups and downs of the market by diversifying so that not all of our money is in one basket with the risks that would go with that. We can perhaps decrease the likelihood that we're out of work for a long period of time by making sound educational choices. But let's suppose that one does all of these and more. And in fact, for 10, say 15, even 20 years, they're healthy and even a little more than making ends meet and relatively stable in their employment. Life is good, as we say. And after an enjoyable night with friends, they're coming home, and an erratic driver, you later find out, he or she blew 1.5 for a blood alcohol level, hits your car, injures you so that you can't do the kind of work you once did. Or your children, or one of your children is diagnosed with a disease. Or you're not able to have children as you had planned back during those premarital counseling sessions. The truth is, right, we could go on and on. And I'm not going to do that, partly because I don't want to overload my counseling schedule this week with people who are down and dejected. But there's something that all of these have in common, and that is uncertainty. Friends, in a fallen world... We live every moment of every day with uncertainty. The truth is, all of our plans, every last one of them, is uncertain. The fact that we are surprised, and we are, when something goes amiss, something goes awry, something doesn't go according to plan, the fact that we're surprised is proof that we often forget how contingent our plans really are. And although we all know what I've just said is true, too often we are all like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, which we all saw at least five times over the last month. You may remember one of the scenes when he's courting Mary and he explains his plans. He says, I'm shaking the dust off of this crummy little town, off my feet, I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum, then I'm going to come back here, go to college, see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. And minutes later, after that monologue, he's summoned home because his father has suffered a fatal heart attack. And his plans would change forever, and those ambitions were never fulfilled. 
So the question for us, if in fact it's true, and it is, that every moment we live with uncertainty, then the question for us is, what do you do with your uncertainty? Well, there are three common responses. You can fret and worry. And some of you live your lives fretting and worrying about what might happen. You can ignore it. Just put it out of mind, full speed ahead. Or a third possibility is to carefully plan to minimize uncertainty. We have here in America whole industries devoted to minimizing risk. So there are people involved in cybersecurity so that your company's computers or your personal computer doesn't completely get pirated and hijacked. Cybersecurity, insurance, financial planning, risk management. Now of these three, fret and worry, ignore it, try to minimize it by careful planning, the first two are sinful. Worrying or ignoring it. The third one can be and often is attended by a sinful because faithless attitude. The third one, the, the careful planning to try to minimize it, that can be and often is sinful because it's attended by a faithless attitude. And we'll see that as we go. Today's passage deals with the last two of those, those three, ignoring it or its principle applies to even carefully planning to try to minimize it. Ignoring uncertainty or trying to minimize or even eliminate it. Ignoring it is arrogant, as if I can make plans without consideration of God's plan with no consequences. Planning to minimize or eliminate can be sinful in that we arrogantly conclude, hear this, we've got it covered. Or at least we know how to have it covered. Ignoring or minimizing uncertainty can express the pride in our hearts and that's why James is dealing with it in chapter 4. He has, in the first three and a half chapters, several times dealt with the foundational necessity of humility in the Christian life. Back in chapter 1 in verse 21, we're told to humbly accept the word that is planted in you. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we are instructed to humbly accept any, any persons that God brings into our sphere of influence. In chapter 3, in verse 1, we are told to humbly admit that we don't have all the answers. Not many of you should be teachers. Teachers will be judged with more strict judgment, says James, chapter 3 and verse 1. In chapter 4, in verse 6, we're reminded God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Chapter 4 and verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. We saw last week in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, another way that our pride can manifest itself, and that is in the way we talk about others. And now today's passage extends that teaching by focusing now on not how we talk about others to others, but how we talk to ourselves about ourselves. 
That is, how we view ourselves. Notice verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. So this is giving us an internal deliberation within an individual about what it is I'm going to do and what it is I'm going to accomplish. And there's no ring of uncertainty about its success. And therefore, this individual is arrogantly ignorant of some important truths. One commentator says this, to make plans without considering God's plan is the same thing as arrogantly claiming to be in full command of the future. In fact, in verse 16, take a look at verse 16. It says, as it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. And the Greek text there says, you boast and brag, it literally means you are boasting in your arrogant pretensions. And so I call your attention then to the outline that's been inserted in your program. Because there, I use the word arrogant. You see the first point there, we display arrogance. Because that's what James is dealing with, the arrogance of ignoring uncertainty. And we're going to see the arrogance of thinking that we have dealt with uncertainty as well. Now, we need God's help, as always. So let's ask Him to help us as we look at His Word and apply it to our hearts. Our Father, we humbly bow our heads and our hearts before You, acknowledging that we need Your help. Apart from You, we can do nothing. And so may Your Word be clear. May our hearts be open. May our minds be attentive. And may we be changed. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Verse 13 says, Now listen. Saying this is important. As if everything in the Bible is not important. But there are times where the Bible says, Listen up. You remember Jesus saying, Truly, truly. Or Paul would say, This is a worthy saying. Hear this. Now listen. And in particular, James is having to get the attention of, at first, hearers who had this read to them and now us as readers. And here's why. Because arrogance does not automatically listen, does it? So now listen, you, we, arrogant types, because arrogance doesn't lend itself to listening. I've noticed that when I talk to people who think that they have life figured out, they're often very bad listeners. Only appearing to hear, but really waiting for you to shut up so they can make a stunning comment and just generally direct you on how the world works. So now, listen, says James. And I have in your outline, we display arrogance. When we plan as though we control a number of things. The first of those is time. We display arrogance when we plan as though we control time. Because verse 13 says, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow. So, I've got today, I've got tomorrow, 
as we'll see, I've got beyond is the attitude as well. The attitude is there will certainly be a today or tomorrow, as if we're somehow in control of that. And this is why I warn young people about their plans and expectations. The truth is, friends, whether there is a rest of today, whether there is a tomorrow, is not at all in your control. And it's been my observation over the years, and you've heard me say it, that midlife crisis begins in our youth. We're not in the crisis, we're just preparing for it. By planting the seeds in our minds and hearts that have expectations like George Bailey. I'm going to make my first million by the time I'm 35. And then, and then, and then, whatever it is. And then, usually, you get to 40 and 45, and it hasn't happened. The seeds of that crisis were planted back when we arrogantly assumed, presumed, that we had control of the factors that would get us from here to there. And so I warn young people about their plans and expectations. As we're going to see at the end of our time, this reality can cause us to plan for the uncertainty with insurance or financial planning or whatever, but the same arrogance can manifest itself in those endeavors as well. So James, first of all, says, listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, because you need to be reminded, you need to understand, you don't know that there'll be a rest of today or a tomorrow. We display arrogance when we plan as though we control time. Or when we plan as though we control action. Action. Because verse 13 says, today or tomorrow... We will. We will most certainly. And then goes on to say what we're going to do. (laughs) Well, you all remember the phrase, I will, in Scripture. Does that remind anybody of anything? If you were to go to Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. There Lucifer, the morning star, who has elevated himself, says, I will, five times in two verses. Isaiah 14 says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. And so there is this arrogant planning that says, I control time and I control action. I will. And I will. What? Well, the place in verse 13 is determined. I will go to this or that city, says the NIV. It's literally, I will go to this city. I'm telling you, I am planning What's going to happen? It is assuredly going to happen, and it's going to happen in this particular place. And I've got the time. Verse 13, this or that city, I'll spend a year there. And then the particular activity, I control that. I will carry on business. Nothing can get in the way, 
And there's no one else to consult or consider. And notice this, dear friends. There is no mention of God or God's plans in this. And so we display arrogance when we plan as though we control time or activity, action. Or, thirdly, ability. Ability. Because in verse 13, all of this is planned. This is what I'm going to do where and within the time frame that I'm going to do it. And then at the end, as a result of all this, I will make money. I'll be successful. Success being defined as my desired outcome. Just think about how you define success. I mean, success is, for many of us, it turning out right. It coming out in the end the way I had planned for it to end. So that's success. I'll be successful because I will achieve my goal. In this case, to make money. And you know you're taking this approach arrogantly. Not because you set a goal. As we're going to see, the Bible doesn't prohibit or discourage setting a goal. So it's not identified because you've simply set a goal, but rather by your reaction to it. By your reaction to what happens when you pursue it and then you have the outcome. You see, friends, if we really bow before uncertainty, if we really humble ourselves before the truth that life is full of uncertainty, then we will not be shocked. I'm going to give a whole list, but just think about it. We won't be shocked, will we, when it doesn't turn out the way I wanted it to or I thought it would? I mean, should I really be shocked? That stuff happens in an uncertain world that's outside of my control, but we arrogantly assume otherwise. And how do we know we arrogantly assume that? Because when it doesn't happen, we're shocked or even angered or depressed or even suicidal. Disappointed? Yes. Despondent? Absolutely not for a Christian. So we display arrogance when we plan as though we control time or action, activity, or the ability that's necessary in order to bring those plans to a successful conclusion as defined by us. And I say secondly in your outline, we display arrogance as well. When we fail to acknowledge that we are a number of things, when we fail to acknowledge that we are, first of all, ignorant. We are arrogant in our unwillingness to deal with what we don't know. That's what I mean by, that's what ignorance means, what I don't know. And the truth is, there's a ton of stuff I don't know. And there's a ton of stuff you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And God has designed it that way. You see, faith is obeying God even when I don't know 
how it's going to turn out. I mean, just think for a minute. Man, just think about the people you know, maybe you, who in our arrogance think we got it figured out or we can have it figured out. And think about the approach that that tact toward life involves. And then just plug in some Bible characters. Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. <laughs> well, you got a map? You got a GPS? AAA do a triptych on this thing? And, and you're Abraham, and you start going to Abraham, where are you going? Think about how many questions Abraham got. Oh, man. Uh, so have you thought about this? You got that covered? Where are you going, by the way? I don't know. Well, Abraham, you're an idiot. From a, from a secular, from a worldly point of view. But from God's point of view, Abraham is a model of faith. Paul, what are you doing? Paul, you were educated under Gamaliel. You're you're learned in philosophy and in languages. And you are putting yourself in extreme danger, Paul, by going to the places you're going. You're riding on ships that are not necessarily seaworthy. And Paul gets shipwrecked. You all remember that? And what would the planners say to that? See, you're the idiot I thought you were. But what about Jesus? Who is ultimately the author, Hebrews 12, and verse 2, the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. But how many times was Jesus told, don't, don't go? Peter says, don't go there. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Listen to me, friends. If your advice is like the friends of Abraham and the friends of Paul and those who have surrounded Jesus, then you are looking at life from a worldly perspective. We display arrogance when we fail to acknowledge the truth is we really ultimately don't know nothing. But we try to act like we do. And then we advise those who don't know, we think, as much as we do. And so we can take a passive approach. It means there's no attempt made to remind ourselves of what we do not know. We just move ahead, full speed ahead. Arrogantly so. Or we can take an active approach toward what we don't know by trying to learn every facet and every fact before making a decision. And the result of that kind of an approach is what some have called analysis paralysis. Guess what? You ain't going to do nothing. If you've got to know every fact about every decision you're going to make, you will never know. Never know. Right? Am I right? You will never know every fact about every decision. We display arrogance when we fail to acknowledge we're ignorant. Secondly, 
We're frail. Verse 14 tells us. Why you do not even know the ignorance, what will happen tomorrow? And then James goes on to describe the frailty. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Life as a mist. It's there and it's gone. And it includes all of the weakness and the frailty that leads to the inevitable death that we will all experience should the Lord tarry and we're taken home before the rapture. We won't take time to turn there. But in Psalm number 90, Psalm number 90, 150 psalms, most of them written by David, one out of 150 written by Moses. Psalm 90. In Psalm 90 and verse 3, he says, Moses says, at the end of his life, as he looks back, you, Lord, return men to the dust of death. And Moses had become, you've heard me say this before, he had become an expert on death. Why? Because when 40 years earlier, Moses led the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Numbers chapter 1 and verse 45, Numbers 1, 45 says, 603,550 adult men left with him. 603,550. If those men had wives, as they undoubtedly did, 1.2 million adults left Egypt following Moses. The Bible tells us exactly three of them lived. Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. 1.2 million deaths in 40 years. Do the math. On average, 30,000 a year. 83 a day. Three to four an hour, one every 15 to 18 minutes. And at the end of his life, (laughs) Moses says in verse 12 of Psalm 90, Teach us, Lord, to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Here's a man who knew we're not in control, we're frail. Our lives could be over today. This week. And we display arrogance when we fail to acknowledge we're ignorant and we're frail, and also that we are dependent. Dependent. Verse 15 says, instead of this arrogance, what we ought to say is if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Do you see in verse 15, if it's the Lord's will, I'll live. I don't have control of life. I don't know how many days, hours, how much time I have. It's only in the Lord's will that I will be alive the rest of this day and tomorrow and next week and next year. If it's the Lord's will, we will live. And if He gives us life, it will only be in the Lord's will that we are able to take on this action and have the ability to carry it out to its conclusion. That's why sometimes I'll say in an email, signing off on an email that I send to some of you, 
see you this Lord's Day. And then I will say, Lord willing. The truth is, I don't know if I'll see you next Lord's Day. Whether because the Lord calls me or calls you or both of us. We will move into our ministry center on February 3rd. Lord willing. Right? I have pastor friends who sometimes sign off kind of like that, but instead of saying Lord willing, they put two initials, DV. Latin for Deo Volente, which means the Lord wills. I just do the favor of speaking English, y'all. But it's absolutely true, friends. We are absolutely dependent, and only arrogance says otherwise. And thirdly, we display arrogance when we usurp God's glory. Usurp God's glory, verse 16, as it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. I mean, you really, we really got it figured out, really? You really know the deal? You're really the answer man or woman, really? And you want everybody to know that, really? God says that's boasting and bragging and it's evil. There is no one here, including the one standing here, who has anything to boast or brag about. I am not the go-to guy or gal, and neither are you. Again, literally, I said earlier in verse 16, this means you are boasting in your arrogant pretensions. Think about what the person in this situation is boasting about. I've made plans. I know how to plan. Some of those plans have turned out right. I'm going to make more plans. Those plans are going to turn out right too because I'm me and I know how to plan. And I'm in control of this stuff. All such boasting is evil, but nonetheless, James had to deal with it. We have to, to deal with it. And think about what's being boasted about. I made money in this case. Really? That's... That's what we're going to boast about? God's impressed with that? You all know the Borden name? Borden Dairy? Many of you probably heard this illustration, but the heir to the Borden fortune, William Borden, was presumed that he would take over the family business. Instead, he decided to use his inheritance to further the gospel. He went overseas. As a young man in his 20s, he found himself in Egypt. He contracted a rare disease, and he died there. He was told by all the planners, what do you think the planners said? Same thing they said to Abraham. Same thing they said to Paul. Same thing they said to Jesus, right? But Borden had kept a diary. And in that diary... He had written two phrases, no retreat, no reserves. I'm not turning back, and I'm leaving it all on the floor, no reserves. 
And then when he contracted this disease and just before he died, he added a third phrase. No regrets. Friends, if you and I arrogantly go through life thinking we've got it covered or that we can have it covered, we will have regrets at the end. It's the person who pursues not your plan, but God's plan, and God has given a plan, and that plan is to advance his mission in his world and to use the abilities that he has afforded each of us to see that move forward so that he receives the glory. That and only that will allow you and me to come to the end of our lives and have no regrets. And so, I can think that I'm in control. But God has a way of reminding me and you that we're not. Now in conclusion, the Bible is not condemning plans. Paul would make plans. He would have an itinerary about cities he was going to visit. And the idea of if the Lord wills or DV, Deo Valente, or or Lord willing. This is not to be just a superstitious mantra that we put at the end. We don't have to put it at the end, and if you don't, or if I forget, that's all good. It's the attitude that goes into the planning. Paul would sometimes do it, sometimes not. Acts chapter 18, he made a promise to some folks he was visiting, I will come back if it is God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. Another time he said, I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. But then there are times where he made plans and he doesn't use the phrase. He decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, I must visit Rome also. And then again, after I've completed this task, I'll go to Spain and visit you on the way. It's the attitude that says, I make these plans, but I make them very, very tentatively. And I hold them with an open grip because ultimately God is in control. Now, I want you all to think about the kinds of things we plan for. Just think before I show you some. Just think, what are the kinds of things we plan for? Common types of planning. We plan for vacation. I mean, just think about that. Think how much time you spend thinking about your next vacation, dreaming about your next vacation. Or that vacation spot has got you so enamored, that's the place you're going to live one of these days. Now your whole life is lined up so you can move to that warmer climate. There must be, I'm sure, in that warmer climate, there's more ministry to be had than there is here. Right? Vacation, health. And so, planning for for health so we can extend longevity, our lives. College. For our business or for our career. For marriage. Marriage, planning for a family. And then, of course, retirement planning. You could fill in the list with more, right? Anything missing there, friends? 
planning for ministry, planning for mission, or to put it another way, planning for eternity. Well, you say, I already planned for eternity. I prayed a prayer when I was six. I'm covered. More arrogance, by the way. Got it covered. Well, then, if that's the deal that you, So God left you here from age six to whatever you are now for the rest of this stuff for no particular purpose? Are you kidding me? God saved you to serve him in his mission. But we arrogantly make our own plans, not his plan, and then we arrogantly use his time to pursue our own stuff. What's it amount to? Loving the world. James says, do not. And if anyone does, the love of the Father is not in him. Everything in the world, cravings of sinful man, lust of his eyes, boasting of what he has and does. Notice, boasting of what he has and does. Comes not from the Father, from the world. The world and its desires pass away. You are a mist, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And do you remember how many times Jesus, the Lord Jesus, when he walked the earth, told people, do not serve mammon. Do not serve money. You cannot serve God and money. Lay up for yourselves treasures where? Plan for eternity. And Jesus told this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He said, this is what I will do. Notice, I will do. This is my plan. I'll tear down, build bigger, store. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. The golden years you have planned wisely. Pat yourself on the back and tell everybody else what you did. And everybody else is impressed, by the way. If you just leave it there, everybody else is like, cool. That's what we're all going after. Everybody's impressed except the one that matters. And God said, you fool. This very night, that life you thought you controlled will be taken. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Friend, if you have to be in control of whatever, your money, your time, if you have to be in control, you will never be a contented Christian. Because the truth is, you just ain't in control. From the moment you were conceived, you came into a world of risk. Right? With every action you take, you assume risk. With every choice, you show what is worth the risk. (laughs) With every choice you refuse to make, you show what you're unwilling to risk. 
The question is not, will there be risk? The question is, on what are you willing to risk? For what are you willing? And for whom are you willing to lose? Do you remember Jesus saying, he who loses his life will what? He or she is the one who will gain it. James has dealt with throughout an arrogance that all of us have, and it manifests itself in a number of ways. And here it's in presumptuous planning. What's the antidote? What's the answer to that? I mentioned at the beginning, chapter 1 and verse 21, humbly accept the word that has been planted in you. But the only way you will and I will accept humbly the word of God that's been planted in us, the only way that that will, will happen is if we have been born again. Verse 18 of chapter 1 says, He has given us new birth. And then the Word of God, in turn, resonates with us. And then and only then will we do the last blank. I know you're all looking at that and you're going, oh no, he's going to pray, he's going to end, and he's not going to give me that last blank. I won't be able to sleep tonight. We, then and only then can we avoid the arrogance of ignoring God's commands. Because verse 17 says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Notice the beginning of that verse. Anyone then. That word then is important because it's connecting verse 17 with what is just preceded. Then, because I've just explained all of this to you, here's what now you should do. <laughs> you stop making the kinds of selfish, arrogant plans that you've been making. And you begin now listening to God. I've told you what to do. And I have given you throughout my word the mission that you're to pursue. Now, center your life around that. And anyone who knows what he or she ought to do and fails to do it, it is sin. How do we avoid that? We're born again. And God's word resonates with us and we humbly accept that word. Friends, do you show the evidence of real, genuine, authentic faith? If not, this could be the very moment that you're changed from the inside out. By the one alone who can do that, realizing you're a sinner, recognizing that he paid for your sin, as we saw from Colossians 2 in our scripture reading, as we sung about today. You repent of your sin then, Lord, I see that I've been living for myself, that I've been arrogant in my attitude, in my words, in my actions. You've shown me my sin. I want to go your way and not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow, you pray. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that He alone can cover your sin and ask Him to rescue you from your sin. Let's bow together. Oh, Father, thank you again for your word and for its penetration in our hearts, for the sword that it is that cuts to the heart, but always for your good purpose. 
I pray, Lord, that you will sanctify your people through your spirit using your word. And I pray that you would draw some to yourself in this sacred moment, some who see that they are pursuing their own life and their own plans arrogantly rather than humbly before the God who made them, who owns them, who has right over them. And that as a result, they are acknowledging their sin and coming to the Savior of their sin. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.